Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of the Unauthorized Disclosure Podcast. I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Brian Namsonenstein, who is a publishing editor for Shadowproof and also the co-host of the Beyond Beyond Prisons podcast with Kim Wilson. Welcome, Brian. Hey, Kevin. Wonderful way to start the day talking to you. Thanks for inviting yes. me. Yes, and thanks for making some time. So I, there's a little bit of a backstory to this episode, which we don't really have to get into, but it, it is worth noting that you're graciously you know, stepping up to give me some time to provide people an introduction into the issue of prison censorship. Yep. And I'll ask you what you think we, we, we mean by that and sure. what we're talking about when we say prison censorship in a moment. But you recommended it some people, we won't name them out of respect. And I reached out and asked people at these organizations and I got varying answers. And of three people I tried, it just seemed like uh, neither of them were confident in being guests on the show this week to talk about this topic, mm -hmm. which uh, I know to you illustrated this, 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 <laughs> weird dynamic of this is one of the most intense problems within prisons for those who are incarcerated. Maybe it's not a, necessarily a life and death issue, although it could be, it sure. could be, but it, we're not necessarily talking about healthcare. Yeah. We're not talking about people being raped or sexually assaulted and it going ignored, but at the same time, like the loss of communication of, of freedom of speech is something that is an intense problem. So uh, in having laid that basic context, when you hear the idea of prison censorship, what are we talking about? And I know you've, you believe it's one of the biggest freedom of speech issues in the United States. Yeah. I mean, where to begin? I mean, I, so I think just sort of zoomed out when we're talking about free speech in the United States, um, you know, obviously if we're talking about like the first amendment and so on and so forth, that's really targeted to the government suppression of speech, right? And a lot of what I feel like gets talked about in the media, um, and not necessarily that it shouldn't be talked about, but a lot of it's focused on like social media platforms or speaking at college, uh, you know, uh, college uh, campuses and things like that. Um, but particularly on the left, I just find it so bizarre because censorship and the stifling of freedom of speech is fundamental bedrock uh, aspect of incarceration in the United States. And I'm not just talking about, for example, you know, banning books or even just banning letters, but we're also talking about the disenfranchisement of voters. We're talking about the coercion that exists around everyday life and communications on the phone. And insofar as the First Amendment, I think, um, enshrines the ability to organize in this country, there's no place in which the state has a tighter grip on demobilizing and suppressing organizing than in the prison. Um, and I think what also just makes it even more bizarre that this is left out of the conversation is that there's almost unlimited impunity that these organizations have, right? Like you can talk all day about how, you know, there are legal protections and constitutional guarantees for people in prison and blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, none of that really matters in practice. Um, I mean, I shouldn't say it doesn't matter, but the fact of the matter is that uh, unless people are actively paying attention, unless people are pressuring corrections departments and so on and so forth 
Um, these issues persist and uh, the, the stifling of speech and organizing is suppressed in every arbitrary uh, way you can imagine. So I think the last thing I'll just say to set this up is that, again, I, I would encourage us to have to think about speech the in the same expansive way that we think about it on the outside, right? And how, uh, how much we might take for granted even just the basic kinds of speech within our families, not even, you know, in terms of getting up on a, on a podium and, and giving a political talk. Um, these things are routinely and systematically controlled, suppressed and stifled. Uh, profit is extracted from them. Um, and again, at the end of the day, I think that people miss that prisons are, are important sites of organizing. They're places where people every day organize and band together for their own survival. And so when we're talking about stifling speech, it is in that context. It's not just people sitting around, you know, like like lumps on a log. Um, so, so yeah, that, I thought maybe that was a good good place to start us off. Yeah, that's, that's really good. And so in preparing for the show, I came up with a few examples, and I think you're right that when we hear prison censorship, one of the first things we know, and it's because I think it's accessible for the yeah. media. It's a really tangible way for the media to cover to say these books are not being allowed into prisons. Yep. Um, that is something that you don't have to do a lot of work to put together that story and to communicate to people that uh, that this is wrong. And you know, typically... Uh, people aren't going to disagree that certain individuals should have access to literature. Uh, and, you know, also like uh, I know that there are struggles within prisons, but it's mostly been agreed upon in our history that incarcerated individuals have access to a law library so that they can <laughs> oh read God, yeah. the materials, but that's not always the case that they right. get to be in that library. But in any case, uh, so um, one of the more vivid examples of the last few years is is one that I followed involving the the book that was done by Heather Ann Thompson on yeah. Attica's uprising uh, called Blood in the Water. Recently, it was restored minus two pages because there's maps. Uh, this happened in New York State. Uh, there was a lawsuit in Illinois against the Illinois Department of Corrections for not allowing that book in. Uh, that's an example. Uh, but if we pull back and we're not just like hyper focused on one particular book, I do note that those who have worked on sending books to prisons note that a lot of times the censorship is targeted to um, black authors, yeah. uh, uh, black novels, black historical nonfiction, black uh, political, uh, black uh, sociolo sociology, anything that yeah. could give, uh, and, and the thing that is, is, is communicated on this that I find to be really salient for our conversation is that anything that could awaken the conscience of any person who is incarcerated, uh, help, help explain what is going on around them. That is something that has to be shut down typically by those who are empowered to be censors. So I'll just throw in yeah. Uh, and then you can respond to all of this because I believe there's a connective tissue to everything here. Yeah. That the Human Rights Defense Center does prison legal news and sends it into prisons. And that is a digest of news items related to prisons and jails throughout the United States. Um, and also, I think, prosecutors as well. Yeah. And so 
knowing what is happening and that it's not just your prison that is oppressing you, but it is all prisons and jails. That is something that is uh, like wardens don't want to allow in their facility. Yeah, absolutely. I think thinking about what you just said, I think one of the things maybe that listeners of this show uh, might appreciate just based on, you know, a lot of what your work uh, focuses on Kevin is that the same sorts of justifications, the same sort of, uh, you know, hearkening to issues of security and safety writ large and extremely broadly are always the sort of, you know, pat justification that the prison is going to use. Um, you know, even I, in South Carolina, shadowproof articles are banned from prisons in South Carolina. Uh, and, you know, you can get down to the reasoning, you can get down into the weeds and moralize about particular books and, you know, maps and books and things like that. But at the end of the day, uh, they can say whatever they want as a reason. And a lot of times they don't even give, uh, you know, a reason to ban these things or to block them. Um, certainly when books like uh, Heather Ann Thompson's, which is very visible and widely known, gets banned, there's an ability to organize around it. There are people are, they know what it is. And, you know, there might be an exception made for that book, but there is so much more that just on a daily basis gets blocked. Um, and, and it's not even necessarily like a formal block, like, you know, the, even the idea that people would be sort of put through the, a process where you're getting a rejection letter. I have people who just receive torn envelopes, you know, who just get like a like a piece of a torn envelope uh, delivered to their cell or delivered uh, to the person on the other side. Um, and I think this gets to the next point uh, that I wanted to make in particular that these facilities, you know, they are part of a larger department of corrections, right? Like they, they do sort of fit into a hierarchy. They have rules and regulations from the top down, but the mail rooms and the wardens in each particular place have an insane amount of control and, and latitude to do whatever they want. And almost never does that get challenged, not even legally, not uh, through public pressure. Um, so I, I wanted to point that out as well. And then the other thing I would say is that uh, on the subject of like what gets censored, I think you're absolutely right when it comes to a lot of, um, you know, black liberation literature and things like that absolutely gets censored. Um, you know, it's also, I think, important to note that a lot of, um, you know, like a lot of incarcerated people use zines, for example, as a means to communicate between facilities, right? Because as an incarcerated person, you can't really like call another prison and talk to somebody, you know, like there's no receiving a phone call in prison. So in order for people to coordinate and to and not even just coordinate, but to to feel connected to other people in their plight, there's all kinds of smaller zines that, you know, don't have an online presence. They don't get talked about in media. There's a whole world of things that <clears throat> I want your your listeners to understand uh, that exist out there that they don't see. Um, and these things are routinely suppressed in the name of security. Um, and, you know, we could go, we could do an entire day worth of content on the absurdity of these. I know in the past, Shadowproof has written about um, how news articles written by prisoners and prisoner adv advocacy groups about white supremacist movements, you know, under the Trump administration, uh, you know, which were not favorable. They were critiques and like, you know, articles about the, the harm and the violence uh, were given designations as like promoting 
uh, white supremacy or racial tension by the prison and, and were blocked for those reasons. So, um, <clears throat> you know, it's it's it serves a lot of purposes, like I said, right? It's uh, it's both a means to just be cruel and just to, to harm people sometimes, uh, which we can get into um, separately. You know, sometimes it's a means to make money if they're outsourcing it to another company and that company's processing the mail and they're getting a kickback, and blah, blah, blah. Um, but again, importantly, I need folks to understand that this is also demobilizing. You know, mm -hmm. it's chilling. It also uh, harms the ability for people who are trying to organize to communicate with each other. Um, there is a very real political consequence to this. And also with the change or proliferation in technology, I know you follow the loss of physical mail. Yes. Uh, and so uh, the this is this is a point where we can shift to uh, incarcerated writers. You yeah. can, but also recognize that not everyone's a writer. Some are just writing to their family, friends, uh, and others they want to remain connected to on the outside. And uh, the possibility that they may not ever physically hold what they're receiving is 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 one aspect, but then also the possibility yeah. that they might not be able to get out, which is the more obvious one, that they won't be able to send what they've written is another aspect. Yeah, and... And to this point, I, I think people also need to understand that we have an enormous amount of research and I think just basic common sense that being able to maintain a personal connection to your loved ones is essential to you, you know, being able to get out of prison and being able to exist after prison in a society and not get dragged back in. You know, you, you, you can't do this stuff alone. Um, it's very hard for families already to stay in touch. Being in prison is extremely expensive. You are nickeled and dimed at every moment. Um, most of the time, it's women who have to do this work uh, and who are taking care of children and also supporting loved ones on the inside. Legal fees. I mean, it's just it's a, a mountain of stuff. Um, and what we've seen, you know, over the last few years is sort of this, um, there, there is a burgeoning movement, I think in, I, you know, I, I can't say like geographically specific to Silicon Valley, but in, in like the tech world, um, to try and get into prisons and, uh, provide services one way or another. Some of this is through like surveillance and, you know, disgusting stuff, like being able to, you know, pipe in, uh, pepper spray, you know, through like sprinklers through the top, you know, I mean, it's like, all kinds of stuff, but one of the one of the most insidious places that uh, these tech companies have gotten involved pertains to mail and visitation, um, both of which obviously are free speech issues. Um, to what you're discussing, you know, in places like Delaware, uh, Pennsylvania, other places around the country, you now have to send your mail to Florida, for example, in order to get your mail to Delaware, because in Florida they're going to check and make sure that you know, the article, the, the thing you're sending is the right size, that it's the right material, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then they're, they're going to photocopy it, which they say is like a high quality reproduction. And then they're going to deliver it digitally or a printout to the incarcerated person. Now, again, I think it's very easy for people to, to say, well, you know, we don't know what kind of contraband is being, you know, what if that letter is soaked in fentanyl or something like that? You know, this is all propaganda. I mean, this is like, Again, for your listeners who are 
you know, maybe more attuned to issues of global imperialism and, and military propaganda around safety and security. These are the same lessons brought home to roost in the United States. Um, most of the contraband that uh, enters into prisons does so either through the literal hands of the guards or through supervision of the guards. None of this stuff gets through without at least one or a couple corrections officers knowing about it. And so at the end of the day, what you're doing is you are just creating more obstacles to keep people in touch because the prison knows that that is what will keep more people in the prison. (laughs) Uh, You know, if you, uh, if, if your child sends you a card that gets banned and rejected because it has glitter on it or because it used some crayon, you know, that they're skeptical of, that's just, that's not just a matter of like an inconvenience of not receiving, a, you know, a card that is deeply traumatizing that impacts the ability of a child to build a connection with a parent on the inside, you know, in an incredible number of people who are incarcerated have a child on the other side. Um, and, you know, I just, uh, it's its just maddening. And then it's the same thing with visitation, right? You know, I think COVID um, has helped facilitate a lot of this and, and sped mm-hmm. it up a lot where, you know, it started before COVID where like we started to see video visitation creep in. Some jails started to try going to, you know, full video visitation, which costs money and, you know, has all kinds of tech problems and assumes all kinds of technological and time capabilities that people have, you know, visiting in person is already terrible, but, um, but, uh, you know, it also introduces a whole new level of surveillance. It also introduces a whole new revenue stream. Um, it, it is just, uh, it is just absolutely disgusting. And again, these things are fundamental to the prison. They're, they're characterized as security issues. And yet, whenever we talk about free speech, people, it's not even on the radar. Mm-hmm. And so I, I noticed in putting together the show, and again, we're just laying out a kind yeah. of a basic foundation. And for those who follow and listen to the show, I, in the future, I'm going to have people come on and talk about things in more specific sections of this, because I do find this to be such a... Uh, uh, it has a lot of synergy with the stuff that I have covered, uh, historically speaking, you know, with the, I mean, it's easy to look at what's going on with prison censorship and connect it to my coverage of whistleblowers, especially yeah. when if somebody like CIA whistleblower, John Kiriakou, who we supported at fire dog Lake ha- was writing letters from Loretto prison that were going through the censors and dealing with, uh, you know, risk of retaliation. I mean, res- I even have a letter that I never published because John was able to get to me a personal request to like, don't post that. I'm afraid I'm going to be uh, impacted negatively if it is. So we're going to hold off and not publish that. We don't need to anymore because I talk about a particular correctional officer and we're past that and I don't want the the, the risks. So in any case, yeah, uh, there are these um, prison book programs. There are There are programs that people have come together to develop. I also noticed that there's a movement to have um, uh, nonprofit organizations or other groups that focus on this like idea of the right to write from yeah. prison. Uh, maybe you want to say a little bit about some of the positive aspects. I will say that before I uh, did the show, I was surprised that as I was looking through just Google News to see 
recent developments that apparently PEN America had done a spread on um, book censorship in prisons and also just other forms of censorship and had a widespread um, number of articles. Like they did four or five different articles as if they were putting together a magazine and we're doing it from an abolitionist perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think there's a few things. Just quickly touching on what you were saying at the beginning about the letter from John and, and that whole dynamic. I think one of the things that I want to underscore is that part of the reason why maybe you don't see as much visible organizing. Like, yes, I think what you're describing with with Penn and some of these or, other organizing um, are positive developments. There's also... Um, the Prison Journalism Project, there's Empowerment Avenue, who we have worked with and are currently working with for Marvel Cook, uh, you know, to, to get incarcerated journalists work published. Um, there's a lot of movement happening here. There's a lot of stuff that we don't see, again, because it's happening on a family and community level. These are not people with Twitter accounts. These are not people with websites. They don't have organization. They don't even have names for their organizations, right? This is much more organic. And I think part of what we need to understand about how serious this is and how it's not just a matter of a policy here and there is that uh, a lot of people are reluctant to really make too much noise about this because the, the, the threat of retaliation is severe and it is not just like a slap on the wrist. You can go to the hole for a year. You can be put in solitary confinement on a trumped up charge that is completely made up or fabricated or, you know, and you could be put in solitary for a year and then you're really not going to communicate with anybody, you know, or, you, or you're really going to have that abridged. So I just, I, I just only to say that the retaliation aspect of this and the chilling effect that has on organizing, I cannot emphasize enough. Um, but yes, as for the positive developments, there has definitely been um you know, particularly, I think, since the prison strikes around 2018, 2019, uh, or 2016, 2019, if I'm getting my dates correct, um, you know, I think that those helped create a lot of the sort of organizational relationships with people on the inside to facilitate programs like this, because mm -hmm. it takes a lot of support for an incarcerated journalist to write, right? Like, they can't just write an article and then email it to me or whatever. You know, some people have access to email. Some people that I've worked with can only receive email and then they have to send me snail mail. You know, like there, there is so much support that's needed. You need people who are around to pick up phone calls at random hours because you can't schedule that stuff. So it is very encouraging to see, um, you know, more energy around this, more organizing capacity. And I highly support that work. Um, you know, if I were to have any criticism about it is, you know, maybe it's a, a separate issue somewhat from free speech, but a lot of times what we see in terms of opportunities for incarcerated people to publish, it's always very narrow, right? Like incarcerated people, we are uh, taught that they're liars, basically, you know, we can't trust what they say, we, we shouldn't trust them at, uh, or believe that they're educated or capable of having an analysis or things like that. I know that, um, I have heard time and time again that incarcerated people will pitch stories to outlets and the outlets will be like, well, actually, you know, we really just want you to talk about, you know, the, the abuse that you're facing or your case and in, in the injustice of it. We don't really want to hear your analysis on COVID or we don't really want to hear what you have to say about sentencing, you know, or, or those kinds of things. Um, and I think that that in its own way is a prejudicial way of also stifling the speech of these people because you know, again, the conditions that they are in, 
there, uh, there is a desperation to be able to, to get the foot in the door and to do this. And, and I just know that so many people have put their own trauma on the line to tell these stories and are still pigeonholed into, into sort of what they're allowed to talk about and not. Um, so it's complicated, but I, I am very grateful that people are taking it more seriously. I'm super grateful for people like Mariam Kaba who have uh, helped us sort of pay incarcerated writers. I think that this is another thing just really quickly um, that I wanted to call out is the fact that, uh, you know, there's laws on the books all over the place that prevent incarcerated people either from giving speeches or accepting money, um, you know, under the guise that it could cause harm to their victims. Um, I don't want to minimize uh, the experiences of people who uh, encountered violence at all. I do think that the problem here is that uh, is the prison, right? Like the the fact of the matter is, is that the prison is getting in the way of any kind of healing or transformation or any sort of ability to deal with harm. And so what we have instead is just this sort of ham-fisted attempt to uh, take away people's ability to um, to not only speak, but to, to take care of themselves. Like I said, it's very expensive. Uh, you know, somebody like Mumia Abu-Jamal, uh, you know, trying to give uh, speeches either about his own experience or his case or just prison issues at large is constantly under attack um, from the, the victim's family, the police officer's family uh, in his case. Um, and so, so yeah, those are some of the things that come to mind uh, on what you said. I hope, I hope that answered uh, your question. Yeah, no, those are all really important details. So as we wind down here, um, I got to get you out of here. Uh, everyone should know that we do this Marvel Cook Fellowship over at Shadowproof, which yep. does give a platform for incarcerated writers and is a place that you can go to read some perspectives uh, from journalists. Uh, they're, they're, they're not... There have been some people that you've been able to get who are incarcerated. There's others who are not, and then yep. they're representing... Uh, some very important issues and speaking on topics that are under uh, attended to when it comes yeah. to the independent media, particularly. Uh, so I just, I think a good point to end on, oh, this is one more quick plug. You and I now co-host a call-in show we called do. The Reframe and people should go to callin.com, look up The Reframe, find it, follow our show. Uh, and I'll, I, I don't, we're supposed to do a show together next week. I'm not quite sure what it'll be on, but I'll just we'll figure it out. I'll, I'll just, um, I'll just tease. Uh, I don't know that it really will, but I'll just tease that something that caught my attention that Brian and you might be able to help me speak on next week is people using um, Twitter to try to have conversations about prison abolition in yeah. bad faith. And yeah. whether that's even appropriate to try and attempt uh, to do because of how uh, much bigotry and prejudice is built into our politics that you have to be able to dismantle and you can't do it through social media necessarily. Yeah. That aside, the last thing I have for you is this censorship is so intrinsic to the prisons that I wanted to note that people who have been involved in prison book programs, I was seeing this, the one person's account that I read, they mentioned it turned them into an abolitionist yes. based upon the problems that they had observed and experienced in trying to send books to prisons. I think yeah. that's a good point to end on. Yeah, I, I'm very grateful that you did that because I think it, it ties to sort of what I wanted to end on as well, which is that I think the biggest, you know, if you're wondering like, well, what the fuck do we do about this? 
Um, I think solidarity in its most basic form is necessary here. Like we need to, particularly journalists, like I'm, I'm speaking to everybody, but journalists, uh, I, I think that we need to not just reach out to prisoners and treat them as an avenue to do our work. We need to actually form relationships of power with incarcerated people so that not only are we, you know, quote unquote, bearing witness to what happens, but we are at their side to fight through it. Because if we allow sort of the distance to exist between journalists or people on the outside and people on the inside, that space is where all of this stuff is allowed to thrive, is allowed to um, evolve and gain steam. It allows organized forces of law enforcement to make all kinds of ridiculous propagandistic claims about uh, contraband and safety and blah, blah, blah. We need to form actual friendships and relationships with people who are on the inside. And I agree, it is a radicalizing experience. And that doesn't mean that every prisoner that you're going to speak to is an abolitionist, far from it. But I think the experience of sort of the quotidian, just petty, violent, uh, you know, again, not even talking about like beatings, abuse, you know, that stuff is all very real and, and serious. And, and there is a place to talk about that. I'm talking about, again, getting a torn envelope with just the stamp delivered to your cell. That is a message. And I think the only way we can really overcome it, the only thing that the prison will cow to is uh, when they have folks on the outside who are committed, who are, uh, you know, actually interested in pushing back. Um, and so I think solidarity really is the, the core uh, of building this community here. Yeah, yeah, and also can get in between intimacy between you and yes. your your relative, your family, your friend. They could take a photo and sexualize it and make it seem like something that it's not, and then you're not even able to like have that connection yeah. with a person on on a on a level that we all identify with from what we do on Facebook or how we share our own. Uh, experiences with each other yeah. on the outside. Women are routinely banned. You know, they'll they'll drive for hours to attend a visitation only to be turned away because, you know, the collar on their shirt is like a centimeter too too low. I mean, again, these are there's ways to look at these through all kinds of lenses, but the censorship lens, you know, in terms of our ability to communicate with each other, we need mm -hmm. to start seeing that more. Yeah. I mean, that's striking because it's like it's a censorship of the senses. It's it's not just right. like yeah. reading and the, it's also like what you hear and what you and what you're able to feel. Yeah. All right. Well, th thank you for joining us on Unauthorized Disclosure, Brian. Uh, again, uh, you are the co-host of Beyond Prisons and also a publishing editor with me over at Shadowproof. So thanks again, Brian. Yeah. Thank you for having me and thanks for giving space to this conversation. I appreciate it. Thanks again to Brian Amsonenstein for coming on the Unauthorized Disclosure podcast to discuss prison censorship. Uh, he's someone who has a lot of expertise, and as he was describing, we do some work with incarcerated writers over at Shadowproof. Uh, next time that we cover this topic, which I hope to be able to do, hopefully Rania can join. She's doing some traveling, so I picked up the slack and got a guest and made sure that we had a good interview for all of you this week. So now I, I want to cover one particular story 
this this was published by the guardian and i'll just put this up here for everyone to see uh revealed how the uk targeted american civil rights leader in a covert campaign describes how the secret foreign office unit how a secret foreign office unit distributed literature from fake sources to discredit stoically carmichael now that's his um that's his um white name that's what people typically call him uh he's known as kwame toure and so i'll be calling him kwame toure kwame toure is the same person as stokely carmichael uh, i don't know why the guardian decided to use this other name but he's he's kwame toure and so uh he was targeted in this uh campaign the so the, and there he is there's uh, Kwame, and he was a part of the uh, Black Panther Party. He was a founding member of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and also at the end of his um, life, he was a leader of the All African People's Revolutionary Party. Uh, the story is that let me take this down. No need to have that up anymore. The British government targeted the uh, American civil rights leader, again, his name is Kwame Toure, and sought to weaken the Black Power movement with covert disinformation campaigns recently declassified documents have revealed. The effort was the work of a secret unit known as the Information Research Department based in London and part of the Foreign Office, which created and distributed literature from fake sources as part of a broader effort to destabilize Cold War enemies. Though focused primarily on the Soviet Union and China, left-wing liberation groups and leaders the UK saw as threats to its interests. The discoveries reveal the IRD from the late 1960s sought to counter more diverse targets too. Uh, and so uh, this is a information operation that is being described, targeted at... Uh, a black power leader. We know that this was something that was routinely carried out by intelligence agencies. We think of the CIA targeting, targeting anti-colonial struggles throughout the world. And then obviously the FBI had with COINTELPRO its own ways to spread disinformation and outright propaganda. And so now uh, this is an example of the intelligence office of of an office, a division within uh, Britain going after black power leaders. And there's some evidence that it is connected to the actions of U.S. intelligence. Of course, it would be because there has been that synergy throughout history uh, when going after and targeting people, though focused primarily on the Soviet Union and China. No, actually, the reason why they were targeting left-wing liberation groups and leaders was because of the fact that the European countries and the United States had this alliance against the Soviet Union and China. It's much like today, much like today where we see people being accused of uh, having uh, disinformation, peddling disinformation, that is the same as back then. Those, those, those people who come out and have views that are, uh, that, that are supposedly in line with 
the Kremlin, as they would say, or are supposedly in line with the Chinese Communist Party, as they might say. Well, those are that's the same as back then. We are reliving another Cold War, or we're returning to our Cold War footing. Uh, as it continues to say that this uh, division created a fake West African organization called the Black Power Africa's Heritage Group, which produced a pamphlet calling Toure an unbidden prophet from America who had no place on the continent. That says, enough is enough. Why Stokely must go and do this his thing elsewhere? Read the pamphlet, alleging that, uh, again, referring to him as others' names, Toure was weaving a bloody trail of chaos in the name of Pan-Africanism and was controlled by Kwame Nkrumah, the in independence leader and former president of Ghana who had been deposed in a coup in 1966. So uh, as is the case, uh, stirring up divisions among people who are supposed to be allies, um, creating that tension so that it's harder for the Pan-Africanism to be uh, established, to, for uh, Kwame to have any kind of success. And the more on this effort is that they, you know, they didn't attack him as a pro-Soviet or a communist stooge, which was a frequent line of attack. The unit saw instead to portray him as a traitor to other black power activists with a patronizing attitude to African peoples. So yeah, so like playing up that thing that he's not really out to represent the interests of African people uh, because he lives in the US, he's not really uh, someone who still has roots in the continent, which is, obscene because the reason why he wouldn't is because he was uprooted in a slave trade that put him on a ship his ancestors were put on a ship he was brought to the united states chained uh his ancestors were made to work on a plantation or some other land and uh then that was um where you can connect back to his his uh you know earlier generations of people in his family that's how he would trace his roots. And, but yet, because he's not got the uh, connection supposedly with Africa, they're going, they're going to make it seem like there's some kind of a division there that makes him somebody who can't be trusted as a leader. And they added in the pamphlet that by coming to Africa, uh, Toure had deserted the cause in the US, uh, which needs him more than we do and had been arrogant in preaching black power to a continent where it already truly belongs. I mean, again, like when you consider why black people are even in the United States because of the slave trade, this becomes even more offensive. It is also claimed that Toure was a burning zealot who seemed to imagine Africans as savages and compared him unfavorably with other radical activists who had recently arrived on the continent from the U.S., such as Eldridge Cleaver, an early leader, an early leader of the Black Panthers who was living in Algeria. Um, and as it continues, the pamphlet again says, we are capable of formulating our own plans for our part in the struggle for equal rights and freedom for the black man everywhere. And when we are launching Black Power, it will be our own brand, African Power, and not the African-American brainchild that Toure is trying to impose on us. And again, I'm going to keep replacing the name because that's his name. It's not 
uh, Stokely. The smear operation against Toure received enthusiastic endorsement from officials within the IRD and elsewhere in the British government, including in the Foreign Office, West African Department. It came amid rising concern in Whitehall about the Black Power movement elsewhere in the world, too. The IRD was particularly worried about the movement's potential influence in the Caribbean. And uh, who, who was in the monarchy, who was uh, who had stepped in, Queen Elizabeth II was there um, looking out at the Caribbean, um, recognizing those uh, colonies and uh, knowing full well that uh, there was uprisings and uh, threats to their ability to try and preserve a certain kind of an order. So there's Car- there's Kwame Toure at a City College of New York in December 1968. And then um, the last bit here is that the IRD also prepared and distributed an article about Black Power leaders targeting Trinidad. This suggested that communists were behind Black Power aspirations on the island, that outside powers operated with the collusion of ambitious locals seeking their own ends. Some tactics in Bermuda were rejected for fear of stoking racial tensions and local officials in the Caribbean were not supportive of the campaign. There were limits to what the IRD was prepared to do. In the Caribbean, the concern was that racial tension could lead to riots and disruption of tourism. So the wider economy in general, the IRD was happy to insinuate something without evidence, but not without right lying. And that's from Rory Cormack, who is a author of the book, uh, how to stage a coup. And this was more of a well-rounded, a well-rounded look at the way that different powers have been able to foment coups, including the Soviet union. And my interest in making sure this was part of the show is to look at what we know already about black power leaders, but then connect it to the fact that, you know, this, this really is the blueprint for what is happening today and we can get into it more ronnie was here i'm sure she'd have a lot to say about this to think of what it means that we're going to be in this long drawn out uh, what they call great power competition with russia and china and other allied countries in that region for the next decades and then what that means for people who are organizing for social, racial, economic, environmental justice, and how they'll get picked off by these intelligence agencies that have incredible amounts of money to direct into these kind of information or propaganda campaigns that are intended to further that foreign policy, further uh, that uh, agenda that they have against Russia, against China, uh, and to bolster Western interests collectively, uh, you know, to make sure that uh, they are able to box in and prevent uh, those who are over in the Pacific region, uh, those who are in and around Russia from being able to chart a path that is separate from what the U.S. empire sets out and lays out. Uh, and so um, we already have an example, as I mentioned previously, with the Amer- the African People's Socialist Party, 
uh, because they do not accept the narrative about, uh, at least its leader, Omar Yeshatela, did not accept the narrative about the war in Ukraine that has been deployed. Uh, he's on the other side and has some independent thoughts about it that uh, he found he was raided by the FBI and swept up in a larger investigation targeting someone who had uh, been hosting conferences about struggles around the world that are fighting uh, U.S. efforts to dominate their people. So I'll keep that very vague because it could involve a lot of different locations and struggles. So thank you for tuning in to the Unauthorized Disclosure podcast. I'll just put up the link where you can go to subscribe. Uh, typically, I have a co-host, Rania Kalik, and some weeks it'll be just me uh, and somebody I interview. Uh, but if you go to the dissenter.org and become a subscriber for $3 a month, uh, for, well, $4 a month, and uh, then I think it drops down to 3 if you become an annual subscriber. And uh, if you go to the dissenter.org, become a subscriber, then you get access to all the exclusive content, the entire full episodes that we put, produce, and uh, then any of the premium ones that we publish that are not for the public, but are just for the community that we're building. And we recently moved to this place, moved from Patreon to this location. We're very grateful. Uh, uh, many people followed us over. Uh, at least half of the people who were at Patreon came over with us. Um, those people who are still over there, they might just be donating to us, or they may not want to have anything to do with our show anymore. Uh, but what we are doing is growing this independently from the Patreon platform, just so that we know that no matter what we do, nobody could ever censor us. Nobody could ever turn around and tell us that what we're putting out as far as the show goes is something that uh, means we will be blocked from using the Patreon service. Not that that had ever happened, but I, we don't take any chances in this current climate. So that being said, thank you for tuning in to the show, and we'll be back next week with another episode.